far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky on Sunday morning for the last several Sundays we've been looking at some of the minor prophets that uh, designation is not a very happy designation because they're not minor as far as their message is concerned at all. It comes, of course, from the evolution of the word smaller in that their books were not as long. But sometimes a short book has a very great message. Uh, last week we looked at uh, Amos and the week before that at Jonah. In Jonah, we looked at a man who was self-satisfied and stubborn and who was determined to keep God from making a mistake. And along about his time also, we come to this man, Amos, that we looked at last week. Uh, Amos was concerned about social injustice. He was concerned about the exploitation of people. He was concerned about corrupt religious practices. And he was concerned about the fact that God's judgment was uh, coming on evil. Uh, last week I asked uh, one of our Chinese students who was helping me with uh, some things in the office to write um, a little gist of the book of Amos uh, for me. And this is what, a part of what she wrote. I thought it was so good that I wanted to share it with you this morning. And this will be our introduction also in taking us into Hosea. She says about Amos, He was not a scholar but a shepherd from a little village. He had courage and a pure heart to do go what God asked him for. <laughs> no matter how hard or dangerous uh, the situation might be, Amos did what God asked him to do. He was also a genius according to what he knew about his neighbors. <laughs> Amaziah attacked him as a prophet fed by the church because Amaziah himself was one of these kind of priests. Amaziah was a cruel man because uh, the most important thing uh, he reported to the king was what Amos said about the death of the king. He knew that the king would be very mad at Amos and perhaps would kill him. 
this gets exactly the picture. And then she goes on to tell us about the plumb line that Amos used. And she said that the plumb line, of course you remember our key phrase, our key thought that I wanted you to remember then, was that if God drops a plumb line and shows that the wall is crooked, we have two choices, straighten the wall or kill the prophet. And so she caught that perfectly. And then when she gave an example that might be used, she said that the most famous wall in the world, as far as she could think of, is the Great Wall of China. And that uh, this wall had to be built on rock uh, because it was a very powerful uh, big wall that was meant to keep people out. And she says about this uh, that the mountains are rocky and the wall had to be wide and strong and, and uh, high but that Christians should build their their, the wall in their heart on the rock of Jesus Christ and upon his words and that his words would be the plumb line to help us to build a straight wall. So I thought that was a pretty good uh, little uh, resume, a little uh, summary of what Jonah, uh, what Amos was teaching us. And now today we come to Hosea. And uh, Hosea really speaks to our time because we live in a time when power and sex are very much in the marketplace. Power and sex and religion. All you have to do is turn the television on and you can see it. The quest for power, the lust after sex, and also mixed into this is religion. And there is always the temptation that God's people have of substituting for loyalty to Him some compromise that enables them to gain power, uh, to compromise their religion and go into some sensual practices. Uh, and we see this all the time. And so when we read the book of Hosea, which is a profoundly deep book in that the preacher's sermon is his life, and in speaking to his people, Israel, he is seeking to call them back to God through a profound tragedy that occurs in his own life. I'll go back in a few minutes when we get to the introduction of the sermon and explain this, but this is one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. It's chapter 11 of the book of the prophet Hosea. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. And yet it is I who took Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria. He will be their king, because they refuse to return to me. And the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me. 
Though they call them to the one on high, none at all exalts him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, indeed he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west, and they will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. Ephraim surrounds me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is also unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the freedoms which we enjoy in this land and for the enormous amount of prosperity which we have had and for the measure of peace that's been ours now for a number of years. With all of these great gifts, there come great responsibilities. And many of us feel that we are not observing well the privileges which we have. And we are not faithful to thee, and we see many in our land turn away from thee. And the day in which we live is uncannily similar to that day in which Amos and Hosea prophesied. We pray that you will help us to learn from your word how we may be faithful so that others may be able to look to us and find good examples of your truth being lived out. We pray that you will receive these gifts which we bring and superintend their use and grant that they may bring glory and honor to Christ and that they may be drawing many people to his great love. In his name we pray. Amen. I think sometimes it's helpful for us to remember some of the Old Testament history that leads us up to the point that we were discussing a moment ago. I'm very glad that uh, Bob Glasgow has led us from time to time in the walk through the Bible because this is a great help to us in understanding. Next Sunday I hope to print in the bulletin a little chart which might be helpful to you in leading us up to uh, the study of some of these minor prophets. If you go back, you remember that God called Abraham. He was called by God to be the father of a special godly nation. You remember he gave to them him that great promise. Abraham had a remarkable family, and it was headed by Jacob, his grandson, whose name is changed to Israel. And uh, he moves to Egypt where Joseph is, and he becomes uh, a large tribe. Israel becomes a very large tribe, and they are called the Israelites. 
And then about 1290 B.C., Moses becomes the leader of God's people to bring them out of the land of Egypt, these Israelites, and to bring them back to Canaan, to a land promised to them. They are settled in Canaan under Joshua's leadership. The Israelites are then led by a series of prophets and judges, the last of whom is Samuel. The Israelites asked Samuel to appoint for them a king so that they will be like the surrounding nations. And so the kingdom of Israel and the Israelites comes about. Saul is the first king. And after Saul comes David. And after David comes Solomon. But you remember that Solomon has a son whose name is Rehoboam. And I often use him as an example of how one person, through one swaggering act of insolence, uh, splits a kingdom. His name, Rehoboam, means gatherer of my people. But he gathered them by scattering them. Uh, he was not a good leader. And as a result of that, the kingdom is divided up into the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Now we're thinking today about prophets who, a prophet who prophesied in the kingdom of Israel with its capital at Samaria. And the one who is preaching there is Hosea. And Hosea is preaching to a group of people who need very much the same type of message which we, which we need in America today. Uh, we see this about us, as I indicated a moment ago, by the influence uh, which, uh, there, which exists between a religion which does not produce a corresponding morality. We have an easy believism that exists in America today. And what Hosea is going to teach us is that God loves his people and he speaks to Israel in this time of peace and plenty and prosperity and luxury in Samaria and in Jerusalem. The people have indulged in all kinds of living that has weakened and debauched them. They drift thoughtlessly into ease and extravagance and this often leads to cruelty and oppression. Their desert preacher Amos comes and speaks and preaches to them but his message had had little effect upon the people and uh, as long as they could keep Assyria quiet and the neighboring nations left them alone, the Israelites were unwilling to think of any danger. But ultimately danger will come. A true prophet of God is able to see the signs of decay. And when he sees the signs of decay and the evidences of poison in the nation's bloodstream, and the inevitable calamity that lies ahead for a people that are stupid and drugged by their peace and by their prosperity and by their easy believism, he begins to speak to them. So this young prophet Hosea comes. He is called upon to do something that it, it I can't understand why Hollywood hadn't made a motion picture about it. They make motion pictures about David and Bathsheba and about 
as Samson and Delilah, but here is the most incredible love story in all of the Bible, outside of the cross of Jesus Christ itself. Because here is Hosea, who is told by God, a sensitive prophetic soul, to go and marry a woman whose name is Gomer. Gomer comes to him, and I am of the opinion that when he married, he did not realize what she was going to be. But she betrays him and becomes an evil, wicked person. Remember now the, the surroundings in which Gomer lives, very much like today. There is sexual perversion. Today it's uh, the in thing to brag about being homosexual or a lesbian. It's the in thing to have a lifestyle that does not admit marriage and fidelity in America. And this is the same sort of thing that existed in the time in which Hosea prophesies. Ashtaroth, Baal, these Canaanitish uh, cults all centered around sex and debauchery. There were temple prostitutes. And evidently at one point this woman, he marries Gomer, goes to some temple, that would be the most reasonable assumption, and becomes some prostitute there. Perhaps she does not share his strong convictions and is not ready to live in the manner in which a prophet of God's wife would live. Children are born. The first child is his own, Jezreel. The other two we do not think were his own, but each of them are given names that show the sadness with which God is having to deal with people who are supposed to be his people, but who are not living up to that responsibility of being his people. Gomer goes away from him and becomes a prostitute. And his heart is broken. And the Bible tells all of this in the most restrained and delicate language and yet God speaks to him in that third chapter that was read to you a moment ago. And he is told, Hosea, to go and buy back his wife again. That she is still his wife. He could have had her stoned. He could have had divorce. And yet God says, I want you to go and buy Gomer back. The picture that I would think of her now is that after these years have passed by and after she has played the harlot in the worst conceivable way, that she is now a toothless old hag who is sold at auction at a slave block for he buys her very cheaply for so many shekels and a sack and a half of barley and God tells him to take her back home. For a while she is to be kept in seclusion because he wants her to come to his senses. What God is saying to us 
in America today is that the conditions in which we live, we see public officials accept bribes, we see churches where people live in ways that are not honoring to God and yet want the blessing of God, where there's not the disciplined life that there should be and family life goes to pieces. And when this happens, there is inevitable trouble that will result. The ordination of homosexuals, the permissive morality, uh, the television cults about religion that almost glorify uh, a sort of success. If you see some of the TV shows now about religion, they almost look like nightclub acts. Uh, it's really ridiculous to see it in this way. Well, this means that people are really trifling with the gods of this world, with the power, with the fame, with the money, with the sex, and as a result of it, we have a civilization that is rottening, and we have a great need for having people who will speak to that rottenness and call people out to a disciplined and a holy life. If you read through, and it's hard to read through the book of Hosea, but I did it this week and listened to it twice on tape, the entire book. It's almost like the sobbing of a person. You find in him one moment there is a flash of great pity and a desire to go after and bring persons back, bring Gomer back, and to bring Israel back. And then there is a flash of anger at the senseless stupidity in which the people are living and acting. And this must be strangely like it is today. This type of thing in its existence. And so, if you go through the verses that are given here, you see that God suffers when his people are unfaithful. I suffer if my sons do something that's dishonorable or that would bring shame upon my family or upon my name. They suffer if I would do something evil. You would suffer and be ashamed of it. Your friends are with you that way. Well, God loves his people and he suffers when they betray him and do evil. The theme of the sermon is the agony of love. And there is always agony in love. You hurt when someone hurts you by conduct that is not becoming to God. This is what God is saying here. Dr. Lacey is here this morning and I can remember one of the most touchingly beautiful things that I ever saw in anyone's office in my life. Years ago I walked into his office. He is a tremendously competent pathologist. I came in and George and I were talking about something and while we were talking, an orthopedic surgeon walked into the office to speak with Dr. Lacey. And what they had to speak about was about a young woman who was in her late teens and a powerful swimmer and a great athlete, but who had cancer of the bone and it was evident that a leg was to be amputated. 
And I looked in the face of that surgeon as he said to George, is there any further test we can do? Is there anything else we can do? Because he did not wish to go to that radical step that had to be taken. The pathologist who has to participate in these decisions spoke of various options that might be made. But the agony of love comes into this because once the decision has to be made, then that radical surgery takes place. Well, this is what Hosea could see was going to happen. And because he loves his people, he denounces those things that are wrong, for God cannot tolerate nor will he condone sin. He will not condone it in the United States of America. If we wish to go into the secular fanaticism that exists in our country today and try to rule God and his values out of our national life, then we will suffer the consequences of that. And they will be terrible consequences that will fall upon us and we will deserve them. We need an Amos. We need a Hosea to come and to speak and to speak in power. Even though God cannot condone or tolerate sin, God still loves the sinner. And that's why we were told that Gomer is to be bought back and to be brought home again. In that touching third chapter, we see God reach out in salvation, in saving grace, to bring this woman back. And God is saying, I want to bring my people back in just that same way. I want to bring my nation back before it's too late. I want to bring my people back to respond to me again. And then if you go through the great sections, there are so many tremendous verses that uh, are often looked upon in this chapter. Uh, one of our great hymns, O come, let us to the Lord our God with contrite hearts return. God is seeking to call his people back again. But let me say this about being coming back to God. It's not just saying I'm sorry. I have people who do the same thing over and over again, and they say over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So what? You're sorry. That doesn't touch God one bit. What does touch him is when you're sorry enough to make some change in your life. He is not interested in holy hot air. He is interested in transformations that take place in people when it gets into the will and it makes a difference. What difference does it, what good does it do when somebody comes back and says that over and over again? It's nothing to that. That's, that's a sort of cheap buying of time which doesn't do any good at all. But when a person's will is being changed, when repentance, and that's what Hosea is speaking about, God's trust had been violated, his truth had been sinned against, and the word troth, we speak about a betrothal, so, uh, that's an old uh, Anglo-Saxon word that is akin to the word truth, but it bears with it a, a responsibility.
and here the home falls apart, and here God is going to seek to rebuild through his love again. The best analogy of it is in the cross of Christ and also in the parable of the prodigal son. There was the cry in that boy's heart, I will arise and go to my father. And God created that cry in his heart and he arose and came to his father. But the interesting thing always to me has been in the account of the prodigal son is that God saw him when he was yet a great way off and ran to him. And so God says through his servant Hosea in this incredible demonstration of love, I see these people and I love them and I want them spoken to. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. That's, a, that's an incredibly beautiful picture for this uh, period of almost 800 years before Christ. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a citation in the New Testament. The more they called them, the more they went from them. And then he goes on to say, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Like a father teaches his little child to walk, so God is saying, these are my people, and I teach them to walk. He teaches us to walk. Almost every week I talk to someone who is involved in some complicated moral problem, and we try to go back, back to the time when God was really speaking to them, and they were learning to walk in his ways. And when they were walking in his ways, we could do some good. And to see if they can go back to those feelings again. That's so necessary to see in repentance and change. That hymn that was sung a moment ago, O love that will not let me go. I know that many of you know the story of it. But one of the reasons that it means so much to me is that I lived as close as from here to my house to, to the church where George Matheson preached, the man who wrote that hymn. I used to walk to the University of Edinburgh to the Divinity School. I would walk out of my house at the flat where we lived at 15 Lonsdale Terrace. And I would walk up the street and through the, National, through the Royal Infirmary of Scotland. Their buildings were there and I'd cut through the Royal Infirmary. And I used to go by the rows of buildings where there were specialists, cardiologists, eye specialists, lung specialists, the various people that were there. And I can remember when I was studying Matheson's life. He died in 1906 right there in Edinburgh. I, he had been a student at New College in the same school that I was going to, and we walked up the same steps. I, years after Matheson's death, Matheson had been in love with a very beautiful girl. They were to be married, but he, in his studies, began to develop some severe headaches. His eyesight was beginning to bother him and so he had gone 
right to this set of buildings that I went by and had walked in to see one of the specialists there who had been treating him. And finally the specialist had to tell George Matheson that he had a disease which was going to make him totally and completely blind and that they could do nothing medically about it. When he was told that, he said years later, he kept this privately for a long time, that he went out of the steps of that building and went straight to see this girl to whom he was engaged, looking for the love that would brace him up and make him feel encouraged. She was kind to him, but she told him she did not wish to be married to a man who would be blind. He was crushed by this. The engagement was dissolved and broken off. His sister came to be his housekeeper. He held various churches in Scotland and then finally came to a huge church with 2,000 members there that was right down the street from where I live and served with great distinction. And yet he could write these words, O oh, love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground their blossoms red, life that shall endless be. That's the agony of love. Hosea was taught the love of God through the love which he had to show to a faithless wife. And George Matheson felt the love of Christ through an agonizing experience that he passed through. I sometimes think that we do not learn anything in life until we suffer. This certainly seems to be true of this nation of Israel and also of Judah. But God still speaks, and he speaks to us to this day of his great love. Think about Isaiah 53, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace is upon him, that by his stripes we are healed. This is the amazing love of God from the prophet Hosea. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that will not let us go and the love which still calls and speaks to us this day. We pray that our response to that love may be faithfulness to you and that you will bless us that we might be true to Jesus Christ in the age in which we live. Help us to reflect, not simply by words, but by deeds of love and mercy and acts of integrity and truth that you are our God and that Christ is our Savior and that the Holy Spirit is working through us to bear a righteous testimony 
in the age in which we live. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with us all, now and forevermore.